Have you ever heard of the doomsday clock? Is that an expression or, or a, a, a metaphor that's familiar to you? It was a symbol that was invented in, in 1947 by an international group of atomic scientists, many of whom who had worked on the Manhattan Project, which was the program that was responsible for developing nuclear bombs that were deployed and used during World War II. Now, the world saw at that moment the power, the destruction that nuclear arms could cause. And this got scientists thinking. So this doomsday clock serves as kind of a warning to the world as of, the, of the danger of, of our so-called scientific advances as the human race. Now the closer this metaphorical clock gets to midnight, the thinking is that the more at risk, not just one country, but all the countries of the world are of a global nuclear catastrophe. So when the clock was established in 1947, it was set at seven minutes to midnight. That's not a very long time. And in 1991, when things seemed to be going generally well across the globe, it was backed up to 17 minutes. But do you know what it was set to in the year 2020? One minute and 40 seconds. The NFL gives a longer time limit at the end of their games with a two-minute warning. One minute and 40 seconds. Meaning that we are as close to disaster as, as can be assessed by human beings. And when the clock hits midnight, so they say, human civilization might see its end. And what's so striking, I think, about this metaphorical clock, in my opinion, is that what it does is it betrays how all of our wishful thinking about human progress is just that, wishful thinking. Not reality, but fantasy. What society seems to know deep in their hearts is that we, by our own doing, are heading for disaster, if not extinction. That's what humanity, with all of its great power, with all of its great knowledge, is heading towards. Not salvation, but destruction. In my lifetime alone, I think about this staggering. The things I've seen just in my short life here on this earth. There's been unprecedented outbreaks in foreign war. There's been just a surge of domestic violence. We've seen terrorist attacks, mass shootings, stock market crashes, worldwide pandemics, intensifying natural disasters, and increasing unrest in all quarters of society. It seems to me that deep down, no matter how much we try to distract ourselves, from the things that are going on around us. We all know that left to our own devices, we're only minutes to midnight. The reason to be optimistic about the future, from a human perspective, whether political or technological or medical or social or whatever, those reasons are dwindling. But folks, We're not here this morning to talk about this world from a purely human perspective, are we? See, Jesus of Nazareth knew what the world's scientists and sociologists have come to discover over these last 2,000 years. Humanity cannot save itself, no matter how desperately it tries. 
Jesus said in Matthew 24-22, unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. See, Jesus knew, again, left to our own sinful impulses, we would destroy ourselves. That's what humanity brings to the table at midnight. Death and destruction. But do you know what, to the, what the Lord brings to the table for humanity when midnight draws near? We read about it this morning. He brings a meal. Not violence, but peace. A feast of peace, in fact. A supper of fellowship. While Pharaoh has his stony little heart set on sin and all of its consequences, the Lord is insistent, insistent on blessing those who trust and obey. And although some face destruction at midnight, indeed, the rest are freely invited to a meal of salvation. You'll remember that last time we were together, we concluded the the third of three cycles of plagues. Each cycle absolutely cratered Egypt's pantheon of gods, whether they were the gods of the sea, the gods of land, or the gods of the sky. See, Pharaoh was approached each time in these three cycles, once when he was at leisure in the morning, then later he was confronted, confronted in his business during the day, and then finally he was accosted without warning. All of these things happened three times each, and yet he could never seem to learn the lesson that these blows against Egypt was communicating. Each time we read, he hardened his heart until the Lord says, you know what, Pharaoh, I'll do you a favor and harden it for you, since that seems to be what you're so set upon. And so nine times now, by Pharaoh's own delight, make no mistake, Pharaoh wanted this. And by the Lord's decree, Pharaoh and his people have sinned. And they were glad of it. They have not let the Hebrews, or who God calls Israel, they have not let the firstborn of God go so they can worship. Egypt's pantheon of gods and culture of luxury is now gone, though. And yet, there's still one God that Pharaoh clings to. It's a God that we're all very familiar with because it's not a God of, of, of stone. It's not a God of precious metal. It's not an ancient God either. Either It's the most subtle and sinister of all. The false God of self. The idol of His own image. Namely, in His case, His own Son. His image bearer. Where Pharaoh places all his hopes for legacy. And so this morning, that is the final God that our Lord confronts. And so in our passage this morning, the we do see the Lord confronts this greatest threat to all of us still. Not nuclear weapons, not climate crisis, not political dictators, but our own self wrapped up in sin. See, while Egypt's gods, whether it be Ra or Set, whether it be Isis or Osiris, those are dead and buried and in the past. Nobody worships those gods anymore. And yet the god of self persists all these thousands of years later. 
See, it's the worship of self. It's the worship of, uh, uh, of our own uh, will and desire. It's the worship of our own life that makes life on earth right now the living hell that it is. See, the pride and greed, the lust and violence that drives entire political and economic and military and social systems, whether it's from a big corporate view or just the the thing within us that, that causes us to do and say and think horrible things in our own private life. All of this is fueled by our sinful bent towards worshiping not God, but ourselves. Not following after His wisdom, but believing in our own wisdom. Our own image, our own status, our own legacy. And it's upon this final false God that the Lord announces the worst destruction yet. Chapter 11 is short and to the point. I think the shortest chapter in the book of Exodus so far. The Lord tells Moses that a final blow is imminent. The last plague is nigh. And it will be so terrible that Pharaoh will have no other option, no other recourse, no other thing to say or do than to finally let the Hebrews go. In fact, it will be so devastating, so terrible that Pharaoh will drive them away. He's been stingy in in, in sinking his claws into these people and not wanting to let their well, maybe their able-bodied men can go. No, well, maybe everybody can go. But then they'll leave their animals behind. No longer. He says, get out. He'll drive them out. But first, God will prepare His people for their exodus with a, a strange and, and, and surprising plot twist. The gift of gold and silver from their oppressors. Provisions from the people that have stripped everything away from them. Now something strange happens in verse 3. After centuries of cruel slavery, the Egyptian, by the Lord's providence and seemingly their own desire, begin to favor the Israelites. That's kind of a, it's a strange thing when you slow down and think about it. Because it's the God of the Israelites that's made, uh, unleashed the chaos on Egypt that has undone creation for Egypt. And so you would think that maybe they would resent the Israelites, that they would hate them, but in some strange way, these nine blows of God against the Egyptian gods have have broken through some of their stony hearts as well. God's Word has, has proven true again. Even the Egyptians, even the Egyptians, will know that He is the Lord and there is no other like Him. Not only do the people give silver and gold freely to the Hebrews. Now, commentators are divided about this. Is this reimbursement or reparations for the the slavery that has gone on for 400 years? Or is it simply a military tribute to this powerful God We're not sure all the motivating factors that go into it, but what is clear is that they are doing this because now we read that they also revere Moses with the implication that they don't revere Pharaoh any longer. 
See, it's Pharaoh's choices. It's his own um, sins and stubbornness that's gotten them into this mess. Not Moses, not the Israelites. And so, the people are gifted with these things, with the, the treasures. Earlier in the Scriptures, we read that the Lord will plunder the Egyptians for the sake of the Israelites. And now they are going out once with only rags and a, and a wobbly old staff and, and the, 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 the ragamuffin shoes on their feet and a few skinny animals there. They're going out with the treasures of Egypt by the provision of the Lord. Now what's going on here exactly? Why give us this detail? I think it's because we're seeing in, in glimpse the Lord's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. This original promise that takes us all the way through the Old Testament Scriptures and on into the life and Gospel of Jesus. This promise is coming to fruition through Israel, all the nations. All the nations, all the peoples and tribes and tongues and colors of the world will be blessed. See, it's surprising to us. But next week we'll read, I think it's in chapter 12, verse 28, that even some of the Egyptians leave their old life behind and go with the Israelites into the promised land. Isn't that a detail that we skip over often? That even a, 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 a small segment, a remnant of Egypt even, sees who God is and goes with Israel. See, I, I can't help but think, it's just one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. When I think of Egypt. You know, Egypt, all throughout the, the story of Scripture, from the beginning in Genesis up until now, Egypt represents the great evil of this world. It, it represents what political empires can be, what, what, what uh, political despots and tyrants that human beings can be, what, what greed and selfishness that we enslave people, that we strip all goodness away from. It shows us what sin can do to humanity. And yet we read in Isaiah 19 of this people that are considered the archetype of evil. On that day, Egypt will tremble and fear because of the threatening hand of the Lord of armies when He raises up against them. The land of Judah will terrify Egypt. Whenever Judah is mentioned, Egypt will tremble because of what the Lord of armies has planned against it. And on that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Israel? No, of Egypt! There will be an altar in Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near the borders of Egypt. And it will be a sign and witness to the Lord of armies in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, when Egypt is now in the, in the shoes of Israel, when they're the ones that are enslaved one day in human history, Isaiah tells us that God will send them a Savior and leader and He will rescue them. The Lord will make Himself known to Egypt and Egypt will know the Lord on that day. They will offer sacrifices and offerings. They'll make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. 
See, that's what all this has been about. This word plagues uh, that we have in the Hebrew is really closer to the idea of a, of, a, of a strike, of a blow. God has been striking at the stony heart of Egypt. And He's striking so that He may heal them. Not so He can put them in the ground. When we lash out and strike against our enemies, political or cultural or social or whatever, we strike them to put them down. The Lord strikes so He can raise them up then they will turn to the Lord and He will be receptive to their prayers and heal them. Even Egypt. The Lord of armies will bless them saying, Egypt, My people, and Israel, My inheritance, are blessed. See, that's what God has planned for this world the evil empires that are in charge throughout human history that use their own sin and rebellion to hurt God's image bearers. God has salvation planned even for the wicked oppressors. He'll strike them down first. He'll make sure they rue the day that they chose not to love God and love their neighbor. But He'll do it so He can save them. Church, I hope our hearts are soft towards our enemies. In this nation today, I see Christians turn on all sorts of people. Christians turn on Republicans. Christians turn on Democrats. Christians turn on on this class of people. Christians turn on this other class of people. uh, Against black, against white, against male, against female. And folks... How presumptive of us who had an unpayable sin debt to God who tells us you're free to go and hold against anything. Hold anything against our brothers and sisters. We never know what God is doing and working in the lives of people even now who oppose and hate us. For us to be resistant to any group of people because they're not like us, shows that we're not very careful readers of Scripture. And even worse, that we don't really understand the heart of the God we worship. When I read this passage today, I can't help but think about the Coptic Christians. Those are the Egyptian Christians of Egypt today. See folks, to be a Christian in America, we might think is is not easy. But go to, not Memphis, Tennessee. Go to Memphis in Egypt. Try to worship the Lord there. See how easy it is there. A highly persecuted and martyred portion of Christ's church are the Coptics. I think of how their congregations just in the past 10-20 years have seen such an escalation and terrorist attacks and bombings. How they'll gather to, to worship the Lord on Easter Sunday and, and dozens of them won't make it home because a bomb will have gone off in their cathedral. And yet, even after that devastation, they go out into the streets with tears in their eyes and songs in their throats singing praises to the Lord. Even after their enemies have tried to kill them and destroy them, they go out and confess, I believe in God the Father, Maker of heaven and earth. 
I believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They go out singing this in Arabic. They go out uh, 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 in, singing their Egyptian praise songs even when their enemies opposed them. Their ancestors who hated Yahweh, who were the great villains of the Old Testament, now these people love the Lord. Truly, they know what it means for God to prepare them a meal at midnight. It's always midnight in Egypt for Christians now. They know in their flesh and bone, their heart and soul, what it cost for the Lord to set a table for them. And they show up to it still. And that cost is exactly what the rest of our passage is about this morning. The cost of sin, Paul tells us, is death. The power of sin and its curse equals punishment and death and obliteration. That's the cost that Pharaoh and others choose. The cost of death. But the Lord will expose their false gods by taking them away. He'll take away the one idol they have left. Their own self. Their own self reflected in their sons who presumably would grow up and be just as sinful and cruel as they are. And so He lays it out. Here's the plan, Israel. At midnight, the Lord will pass through Egypt, striking dead every firstborn, high class or low, slave or free, human or beast. It will be the worst disaster Egypt has ever seen or ever will see. But as for the Israelites, not even a stray dog will snarl at them. Because the Lord will make a distinguishing, or a, a distinction rather, between those who trust in Him and those who don't. Let's get something clear though. The Scriptures go on to show this is not an ethnic thing. It's not a racial thing. The Lord doesn't love only some races of people or only some ethnicities of people. The Lord distinguishes between those who respond in faith and those who reject Him out of pride. Because the Egyptians, some of them go out with Egypt and they're grafted into the people. Later, Paul picks up this motif and says, you Gentiles in Rome think you're so high and mighty. You're in the, 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 the epicenter of the world. Here in America today, we think we're the center of reality. They, they, it's the America show every day in the world and everybody else is just a, a, a lesser than country. Not as great of a people. That's not how the Lord sees it. The Lord sees not by country or class or anything else, but those who turn to Him in faith. Black or white. Rich or poor. Male or female. Whatever it may be. Whatever hierarchies we put, the Lord collapses those. And so He makes a distinction between those who trust and those who don't. And so Moses announces all of this to Pharaoh. And he leaves in anger. It's a burning anger in him because Pharaoh's heart remains hard still. Now folks, if the story stopped here, if we or Egypt or Israel were left to our own devices, we'd find that time shortly would be up. The clock would strike midnight and our doom, like we sang this morning, would be sure. But where humanity leaves a mess, the Lord brings a meal. 
In chapter 12, we read that the Lord inaugurates a new kind of time. See, He he, he changes. When He comes into the life of His people, He changes how they even orient themselves towards time. They reset their clock, reset their calendar. This month of Passover will be the first month to you. This is when your story begins, Israel. This will be your defining moment. And so tell your community that they'll commemorate it annually. Every time this month comes around, you will remember that the year you've just had and the year you hope to have are all because the Lord rescues His people out of slavery. Verses 3-13 through give us such precise detail that it's, you know, when we're reading it in our Bible plans or whatever, we're like, oh man, this is, man, the action was going and the stuff was popping here and there and then we, it's like we get this big law code in the center. That means that we need to pay close attention. If in the middle of the story, the Lord gives such precise detail about this seemingly simple meal, that means we need to pay attention to what its details are showing us. And it's extremely precise. Each family, big or small, rich or poor, or and if you don't have uh, uh, ways to provide for yourself, go to your neighbor. Bundle up with somebody else. And you'll each take a young animal without blemish, preferably a lamb or a kid. The kid of a goat, not a human kid, I should say. Although sometimes some of the parents in the room probably want to sacrifice their kids. But that's, that's, you know, that's another story. They'll take a lamb or a kid, one without blemish, one without spot, and they'll take care of them for a few days letting the, the children bond with them, become, this animal becomes a part of the family before they take it outside and slaughter it at dusk. And if that's not gruesome enough, then they take the blood and smear the blood of this animal that became a beloved part of the family. They smear it over the transom of their doors. And then they take it back inside and, and roast its body, prepare and eat it. Roast it over a bonfire, not cooked in a crock pot, not, not left to, to saute or broil or anything like that, but they roast it over a fire. And they have sandals on their feet and a staff in their hand. They're in a hurry. And they eat bitter desert herbs and unleavened bread. There's no time for them to lollygag. They must eat as people that are about to be sent out of the land. To remember that at a time... They weren't established in the land. And an evil empire and an evil pharaoh drove them out. And they became nomads and exiles and wanderers. But even in that, they're still eating a meal in peace. But they'll eat it in haste as much as they eat it in peace. And they'll burn up whatever remains. And they partake of this meal in faith. And they sit under this bloody door for a night in faith because the Lord will pass over their lands and homes and He will strike dead every idol not protected by the blood of the sacrifice. And in this way, the Scriptures tell us, in a climactic way, in this way we'll know the Lord has executed His judgments against the false gods of Egypt. Because all the other gods are dead and now the God of self is dead too. But here we see for those that sit under the blood that feast with this meal 
This Passover is a reminder that God saves His people. It's a costly salvation though. And the details continue in verses 14-20. through This midnight meal, this Passover evening, turns into a whole week of worship. It kicks off. The Passover is the beginning of the festival of unleavened bread where they abstain from yeast. You know what yeast is? It's a corrupting ingredient. Now, it's good to us because it makes those great sourdough loaves that you can get at what's that place in Loganville that's so great? That sandwich shop. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They make such great bread there. And you put a nice corned beef and have a nice rye and pastrami, whatever. We're getting off the point here. But that you don't put any corrupting yeast in the bread. You don't have time for that. You eat meagerly. You eat without this leaven. Leaven you know, is a symbol of corruption too. It spreads and causes disease. It's a symbol of sin. The leaven that enters our lives of sin and touches and corrupts everything, that's put aside for a week. We remove all yeast. We don't associate with people that eat yeast from this first to seventh day. And on the first day, we have a worship service. On the seventh day, we have a worship service. We don't work during those days. We only worship. There are no exceptions. And it's here that we see that this feast is a reminder not only that God saves His people, but He sanctifies His people. He calls them to be something unique and different. Their life in Him is a life of worship that sets them apart. They're distinct from the world. Remember, He distinguishes between those who don't believe and those who do believe. And those who do believe and act in such a way are different. They seem different to the world around them. Even their own children wonder, what is this? And they ask their parents, what does this ceremony mean? And they explain it to them. Because their lives were to be not only saved, but lived out under the blood of the animal sacrifice. Everywhere they went, everything they did, that's why it was at the doorpost, whether they were coming or going, whatever their daily tasks were, it was a life lived under the blood. Moses tells them to stay inside and let midnight pass them by so that morning may come. The destroyer, we read, some really unknown uh, force from the Lord, some unknown messenger, maybe the Lord Himself, we're not really sure in verse 23. But this one will come representing the Lord. And although He strikes people down in justice, remember, Egypt has, has had nine chances to repent. Nine! Do you give your kids or your spouse or your coworker or your friend nine chances to do anything? I don't think so. The Lord has given nine warnings. Repent. They haven't listened. And so justice will come in Egypt. But for those who believe, Israeli or Egyptian, for those that put blood over their door, whether they're good people or bad people, whether they're old people or young people, whether they're Gentile or pagan or Jewish or whatever they are, if they put that blood over the door, not anything they do, but when the blood goes over the door, 
the Lord passes by in mercy. And while they huddle inside around a fire, the Lord prepares for them a meal. A meal of substitute. A meal of sacrifice. And one day, and and one that they routinely participate in, remembering when they were suffering slaves in Egypt, the Lord loved them and liberated them. And so we read in verse 27, the Lord, or rather the people, knelt low and worshipped. How could you have any other response to this kind of God, to this kind of freedom, to this kind of love than to kneel low and worship? And next week we'll see how midnight comes for Egypt with all its death and sorrow. But for God's people, for those who trust, for those that live under the blood, a celebratory meal got underway. Now people... For us on this side of history, for us that live in a culture of stress and worry and rage and anxiety, we're pinging from one catastrophe to the next. I saw so many people say, oh, just when we thought this pandemic was slowing down, oh, there's a war erupting on the other side of the globe. We can't catch a break. When we feel like we're only minutes to midnight, how comforting to know That in our dark, in our despair, in our death, that's precisely where God meets us. He not only meets us though, He brings a supper. A supper of sacrifice to our table. And it's not just any supper. It's not just any sacrifice. He brings Jesus. The firstborn Son of God. And the Son of Man. He brings Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for us to take away the sins of the world. He brings Jesus before Israel was adopted, before the church was engrafted. He brings Jesus, the firstborn, through whom we all have life. And whereas this midnight meal was only for the Israelites, The meal that we get to celebrate in Jesus is for all that come to Him in faith. For anybody. And for everybody. When Jesus celebrated the Passover with His disciples, the day before He died on the cross, He wasn't simply celebrating the Passover. He was inaugurating a new Passover. A new meal. The Lord's Supper that was reinterpreted, that was refocused, in Him and who He is and what He does for us. And because He was and is the slain Lamb of God and the Scripture tells us the bread of life, He now invites us And in whatever dark midnight of the soul we're in right now. When our bills are due, when the family is falling apart, when we're sunk deep down in depression, when the doctor calls with a bad report, and when the world around us is crumbling, when we're in the pitch black of that night, we can sing and say with the Apostle Paul that we have been saved and we have been sanctified because Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast. Not with the old leaven. Not with the old ways of malice and evil and hatred and all the things we bring to the table. Sin and selfishness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity 
and of truth. He is the truth. And our hope as midnight approaches and coming to a meal with Him. Let's pray. Father, the Psalms tell us that You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And our enemies are sin and death. So Lord, anoint our heads with the oil of Your mercy. Let our cups overflow with Your grace. And let Your goodness and faithful love pursue us all the days of our lives so that we will dwell with You in Your house both now and forever. We pray all this only in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God and our Bread of Life. Amen.